0: This is The Literary Life. I'm Mitchell Kaplan. I've owned Books and Books and been a bookseller for over 35 years. What you're about to hear are conversations about all things literary, with writers, readers, publishers, old friends, new friends, and anyone who might wander into our store with an interesting story to tell about their connection to books, reading, or writing. These will be informal, over the backyard fence kind of conversations the kind I and booksellers everywhere have each and every day. My guest today in The Literary Life is Jane Levy. Um, Those of you who have not uh, had the pleasure of hearing Jane Levy being interviewed are in for what I think is going to be one of the great treats of your listening life. Uh, Jane is the author of many, many different New York Times bestsellers. Uh, She wrote The Last Boy, Sandy Koufax, A Lefty's Legacy, and the comic novel Squeeze Play, which Entertainment Weekly called the best novel ever written about baseball. She was a staff writer at the Washington Post, uh, first in the sports section, then writing for the style section. She covered baseball, tennis, and the Olympics for the paper. But she also wrote features for the style section about sports, politics, and pop culture. One that I remember, and I actually remember it well, because he happened to be one of my favorite- Mugsy, The Mugsy uh, piece that you wrote. Mugsy was one of my favorite basketball players ever uh, she wrote this marvelous piece a profile of Muggsy Bogues and many of you know that he was the 5-3 guard for the Washington Wizards uh, and what it what I've what I read is that the piece was longer than he is tall
1: it's true and <laughs> they hung it up you know used to have these old transcripts that you could hang up and they hung it up in the style sections office as a caution to people never to write that long about anything ever again right and what makes it even better is he said one thing during the entire interview more so <laughs> <laughs>
0: <Is that> right <laughs> well he was a member of that great high school basketball team right where almost yes. everybody in the team became professional basketball players yeah i think len bias was on that team as i think well, you're absolutely right ba-
1: in baltimore
0: yeah yeah He yeah, yeah. was in baltimore Uh, But we're here to celebrate the publication in paperback of The Big Fella, uh, Babe Ruth and the World He Created. And I think one of my favorite quotes about the book is by the great baseball writer, Bill James. And he goes, uh, Bill James says about The Big Fella, Jane Levy writing a book about Babe Ruth is the biggest thing that has happened in my life since Santa Claus visited my classroom in the second grade. This is Babe Ruth off the diamond and out of uniform, a very flawed human being, but still very much a hero, a man who could lift an army of beggars and wannabes onto his back and carry them to their dreams." Isn't that just an amazing quote, James?
1: I, I almost passed out. But you know what people miss about Bill James because of all the stats and the revolution he created in how to write about baseball, think about baseball, is what a glorious wordsmith he is. And I read that and I just thought, boy, I wish I could write like that.
0: Well, tell me, you know, someone in, in one of the other reviews I read, someone uh, remarked that... Every 10 years, there needs to be an amazing Babe Ruth biography, but you now have knocked it out of the park so that nobody else could write uh, another Babe Ruth biography. Why Babe Ruth?
1: Well, it wasn't really my choice, Mitch. Uh, You know, what happens, as you well know, in publishing is that they have more control over what you write than readers like to think. So I had a two book deal. And after Mickey Mantle, I went back and said, how about Billie Jean King? And they said, "Uh, uh, she's kind of old. This was just before the movie came out. Yeah, it's not too old for Emma Stone, but okay. (laughs) So then I said, "How uh, how about Mel Brooks? And they said, well, you know, he's kind of old. And I went, Yeah, that's why we have to do it now. And it suddenly dawned on me. You know, I'm supposed to be able to psych these things out. It took me a while to realize they only wanted me to write about baseball. And I think one of the secrets about the literary life, at least when you have signed a two book contract, is that they have a list, you know, they know who bought the other books. Right. They know where they bought them, when they bought them, what occasion they bought them for. Hardback, softback, Southeast, Northwest. And they can sell me to that list.
0: Well, you made a big mistake. You made that Mickey Mantle book way too successful.
1: Yeah, I really screwed that <laughs> up. <laughs> You'd be writing
0: about Mel Brooks if it, hadn't been, <laughs> yeah, exactly. if it hadn't been as successful as it was.
1: So I'm very lucky in that. So many of my friends who are people who have made very nice lives and livings, you know, writing books sequentially, can't get contracts anymore. That's how much, as you well know, that the industry is contracted. So I'm very lucky that anybody wants me to write anything at all. That's, you know, um, but I am sort of now branded, which I never thought I would be. And, um, you know, maybe when I'm old and older um, and rocking chair age, I can go back and do some of the other things that I would like to do. Um, but in the meantime, you know, I, baseball and me seem to be stuck with each other.
0: How was it that you came to settle on Babe Ruth? as their next subject?
1: Well, the wise-ass answer is after Sandy Koufax and Mickey Mantle, who are you going to do, right? Um, The less wise-ass answer is I will not do a subject, redo a subject that a friend has done or that I think has been done so well that there's like nothing I can contribute. So I did not want to write about Babe Ruth because there have been lots of really good books about him. But I started out wanting to write a novel about him. And originally the contract was to write a novel in which Babe Ruth, uh, it was going to be called Tar Brush. And if you go on the internet, you can still, and you ferret around, you can still find illusions. Jane Levy's new novel, Tarbrush, will be published in 2012. Um, so I wanted to write a novel in which he found out that he was Black. And Consider what Babe Ruth would have done and how America would have reacted had the greatest hero in the country been proved to be black 20 years before Jackie Robinson showed up in a Dodger uniform. And for a variety of reasons that I have to remember to be politic enough not to enumerate, it became Im- possible for me to write the less paying fictional version of the babe and after they rejected every other non-fiction idea i had and i i realized uh, they're i'm just it's baseball they're good. they just want me to write about baseball so i took a year before i signed the contract and read everything that had been written about him and i mean newspaper magazine hardcover and realized pretty quickly that there was something missing from all of the books all of the accounts and that was the first 20 years of his life it was as if he emerged you know uh, in a in a in a Baltimore Orioles uniform in March 1914 uh, you know out of out of the ether where was the little boy that his family called little george and so By the time I got done realizing there was a a real hole in the biography, I said, okay, there's a story to tell. And if I can get that, then maybe there is something to add to what Bob Creamer, Lee Montville, Marshall Spelser, et al. had done. And then I went to visit his daughter, um, Julia Ruth Stevens, who uh, died in March. She was in a perky 95 years old. Uh, She died at 102 um, this spring. And... apropos of nothing, I can't claim that I was smart, I can't claim I was prescient, nothing. She just said to me in this very coy Southern way that she had about her, well, you do know that George Sr., babe's father, and Katie, his mother, and then she kind of looked around to make sure nobody was listening, were separated. And my mouth dropped open. I went, uh, no. I didn't know, and in all I,
0: that you had read, it was never ever reported nothing, that way.
1: Nothing. Nothing. And so I then called one of his granddaughters, and she said, "Separated. Hell, they were divorced." So here's the difference between Bob Creamer writing in 19, pub, publishing in nineteen seventy four, and me, or even Lee Montville in two thousand and six, and me. The disadvantage that I presumed I would be at writing about the babes so many years later where there would be no one to talk to as casey stankel might have said everybody you want to talk to is presently dead <laughs> um is that the archival information that i could access with a click of a mouse eluded them completely so there was no way that bob creamer writing in 1974 could then go to the internet type in george h ruth senior V. Katie Ruth and find Deus Ex Machina Up Pop's stories in the Baltimore Sun in May 1906. About their divorce. Uh, n- documenting their divorce and the causes for their divorce, wow. which were adultery and drunkenness. Wow. So what that tells you is two things. First of all, it told me, okay, sign the contract. But it also told me that the mythology about him that he was this, you know, lamentable miscreant hovering uh, like, like around a delinquent on the waterfront of Baltimore, turns out he never lived on the waterfront in Baltimore, was not true. Because you don't get your divorce announced and printed in, in the Baltimore Sun and the, I think it was American.
0: Unless, you're, unless
1: a, you're a significant person. Right. Not the ne'er-do-well that his father had always been described as. From there, I went to the archives of the Maryland, Maryland State Archives in Annapolis. And the entire divorce f- file, yeah. hundreds and hundreds of pages, police reports, everything is right there. I suddenly went, oh, my God, he makes sense. He wasn't the orphan everybody claimed he was. Right. Nor was he the bad boy. He that just everybody- grew up,
0: He grew up in a very dysfunctional family
1: well when you read the um the deposition of his father in the divorce case and he says about the the divorce and the causes for it that the he found his wife um in a compromising position with his bartender and the bartender writes a confession that says i fucked f u c k t mrs ruth on the dinging d-i-n-g-i-n-g dinging room floor <laughs> oh, and this is all in the archives oh, so God. what becomes apparent is not that he was a bad kid it's that he was an abandoned child who was sent away to live in this school that was at
0: the saint mary's industrial saint school, mary's industrial school which boys. was
1: which took orphans And yes, it took people who were sent by the courts, who were called incorrigibles, as he was often labeled, but he wasn't. Um, But they also took boarding students. Guess which one Babe Ruth was?
0: He had to have been a boarding student at that point.
1: And so his father was wealthy enough to pay for him to go there.
0: So he was actually sent there yes. by the father. It wasn't a right. something with As soon as wh- the mother
1: was out of that, gone, just fate was sealed. They actually sent him for the first time in uh, June of 1902. Now, this was a tumultuous marriage even before the gossipy end. And they had lost, they had several children. He was born, um, well, Kate was pregnant for two months before they got married. um, And then they had a succession of children and deaths of children, two of them, two of them from uh, malnutrition. So this was a horrible Horrible child. It's, yeah. it's not just that he got sent away, but he had seen several siblings die, two of malnutrition, before he gets sent to St. Mary's. So right. he was left there to create a life. And to create a self.
0: Did the, did the image of him, or the the, the myth of him becoming uh, being an orphan, did have anything to do with the fact that his mother died when he was very young? Right, his mother died. He wasn't.
1: She wasn't. He was. Um, wasn't she was 1912. So he he was born. He was 11 years old when 11, she died. Yeah.
0: And and the father didn't come to visit him very much. Never. Never, Never once. Never and once. any
1: yeah, and the one account that exists of a of a contemporary who was at St Mary's with Babe was that, you know, another Sunday would come with Babe having no visitors um, because they only were allowed to have visitors once a month on a Sunday afternoon for a oh. prescribed period of time and he said, well, I must be too ugly to have any to have anybody want to visit me. But the father never came and the mother did come for a while, I think,
0: but she was ill. So who at St Mary's sort of took him under uh, his wing and and made him who he became.
1: Well, you know, there's part of the legend, again, is of this sainted brother... Uh, brother Matthias, a big tall guy who was too big to fit through the door of the little cell that he lived in. And, um, and clearly that guy existed and clearly he knew how to hit a baseball and Babe learned mm. stuff from him. But as one of the brothers I interviewed um, from the Order, it's the Zaverian brothers, said, there are a whole lot of brothers who take credit for making Babe Ruth who he was, um, mm. who weren't there when he was there. A lot of that mythology comes from the first written autobiography, which was written, believe it or not, for a newspaper uh, serial by Westbrook Pegler when he was a young reporter for a now non-existent newspaper syndicate. And he made it all up because he couldn't catch up with Babe Ruth in the summer of 1921. But it wasn't till 1947 That he admitted, oh yeah, I made it all up in a a Manhattan apartment (laughs) because I couldn't get him to talk to me. So he made up the whole legend of Brother Matthias.
0: Is there a straight line for him? Once you know that and you really begin to understand that, does it put his latter life in somewhat perspective in any real sense?
1: Yes, completely. That is the perfect question to ask. I just want to point that out to you. The 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 hard thing with Frith Babe Ruth was always to understand how he became the guy Casey Stengel called the big feller. So that's, that's the title. That was the name actually people used. Though I have a list of about fifty of them that were made up by sports writers. So how did he come to fill the American imagination and stage and hold on to it as he still does? So. The secret to it, the answer to it is at St. Mary's. Because in St. Mary's, these boys, and they were always oversubscribed because there was a plethora of orphans and abandoned children and boarding students, um, they slept head to toe in identical wrought iron beds right. that were made uh, you know, exactly the same way. Nobody had a teddy bear. Nobody had anything personal. There was just enough room between the rows of them. Um, for a bent wood chair and to get down and say your prayers at night. And what Babe Ruth learned at St. Mary's, other than how to hit the hell out of a ball and how to throw a, a, a wicked curveball, um, was how to be public. That was the norm for him. They bathed together, they dressed together, they ate together, albeit in silence per the school rules, um, but they were never alone. And so What was comfort to him, what was normal to him, where he felt, you know, comfortable in his own skin, was surrounded by guys. And what better
0: way, you know, to be on a team, a sports team is exactly that.
1: Right. And so it explains to me um, why it is he was the guy who was best qualified to be the first great Public celebrity of the media age.
0: So let's talk about that a little bit because your subtitle is Babe Ruth and the world he created. So what is that world he created really? he in had, your in your mind?
1: He had the good luck to come along at exactly a, the moment when there was a confluence of uh, event and change in this country. It was the beginning of mass media beginning of radio and of um being able to transmit you know numbers and numbers of words back to an office in New York you could send you could send pictures overnight by 1925 from New York to Chicago or New York to Los Angeles cost a lot of money but you you know but you could do it thus his mistress showed up in the pages of the New York Daily News in, 19, in August 1925 but there was a Celebrity was being redefined um, by technology, by marketing. The efforts of Ivy Lee and Edward Bernays to understand how to sell an image and a and a person and an idea. Um, and it was right after the end of the war and the end of there was a you know brief period of adjustment while the economy switched into a big consumer economy and people had money to spend. And one of the things they spent the dime was radios and baseball tickets right and so it was the perfect stage erected for him to take possession of and so he did
0: but paint a little bit of a picture as to just how gargantuan of a character and a figure he was
1: (laughs) um So if you look at the beginning of the book that we used in in this picture um, on the end papers of him being surrounded, subsumed by 5,000 boys who tumble out of a rickety ballpark in Syracuse, New York. Now, in those days, days off for Major League Baseball players didn't exist. So this was a, a, a day between games in New York and I think they were going on to Cleveland. And so they had a game in Syracuse. And Ruth's contract... Um, it's been reported previously that he was required to play all these exhibition games. Oh no, the Yankees were way smarter than that. They paid him extra to be to play in those games. So here he is, and he, the five thousand kids pour out of this ballpark and surround him. They're draped over him like a cheap fur boa. you know they're they're agog, and he doesn't want to be separate from them. There's no posse to keep him safe right. there's no you know agent saying move these kids away you know he's thrilled and he stands head and shoulders over them and one of the things that's fabulous about the picture and it's it, it may be my favorite one of him ever is that all the kids are looking at the camera so this this was a cameraman who figured out how to get these thousands of kids this swarm into one frame and there they are and they're all looking at the camera. They want to be with Babe Ruth. Right. They want to be in proximity to Babe Ruth, but they also want to be seen being in proximity to Babe Ruth. So it's a quintessential-
0: Early selfie. Early <laughs> selfie moment. It's a
1: moment of you know, modernity, when, people, when that consciousness of being seen starts to matter. And that's how big he was. Yeah. I mean, you know, he hit home runs where kids would pile out of the stands and tackle him, you know, as he's running the bases, one of his 60 home runs in 1927. And the kid grabs onto his bat. So he carries the kid at holding onto the bat, you know, oh as he's tr- rounding third base. He just, you know, uh, he was also physically, and this is important to say, larger than anybody who played the game, and that's significant. Because when he came to the Red Sox in 1914, he was six foot two, maybe 185, 190 pounds. Of course, he was a uh, he was known as the Baltimore Blizzard then for his. He played fed-
0: minor league and he was a. What? Well, no, he came
1: player. first to the the Red Sox, and then they sent him down. Oh, well, they sent him down yeah, to. to the Baltimore. Oh, I, I apologize. He was signed by the Orioles in March 1914. Then he was sold by them to the Red Sox that summer. He made a start for them. He arrived in, in Boston, went to the mound, and then they sent him down to Providence where he helped them win the, uh, their, their league championship and where he hit his first professional home run in uh, Toronto, actually, um, in competition. And then he came back to the Red Sox in 1915. But um, he was twice the size of these other guys. Right. You know, I mean, he he was huge compared to them. Of course, he would get huger and huger as he discovered beer and um, other delights. Yeah, but
0: he also had the great paunch.
1: (laughs) Well, the paunch was later. Yeah. The paunch was at that point he was a he was a tall drink of water, right. and the, again the, the, you know so so often it's the photographs of somebody that'll just define what you write. There's a picture of him with his arm around a bat boy, where his arm goes all the way around this ten year old, and his hands are like garden trowels. You know, uh, is that what that is? Yeah, the, yeah, the trowel. They're so gigantic that it, they're frightening, right? So I was at the Hall of Fame when they unveiled their new exhibit in 2014, the 100th anniversary of Babe's debut. And Cal Ripken was there. And I covered Cal Ripken when Cal was a young pigeon for the Baltimore Orioles. And he grabs my arm and he says, come here, I got to show you something. I got to show you something. He drags me over to Babe Ruth's bowling ball. And he says, I really want to put my fingers in babe's ball. That's so it's so, <laughs> it's so cal, you know. He's, he's like oblivious. I said, Well, you know, I, I think we I think we can arrange that because I knew there was another babe's other ball was down right. in the basement. And he said, No, 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 I really want to get a sense of the spread of his hand. So this was one great athlete trying to gain purchase on the greatness, to get a grip on the greatness of Babe Ruth and the hugeness of Babe Ruth. So he had to go off to do some speech. Otherwise, I could have gotten the curator to get him to put his fingers in Babe's balls. And um, (laughs) I got a bowling ball expert to come to the Hall of Fame and measure Babe's balls. Wow. So um, the distance between his thumb joint and the middle finger joint, I think, was a bit four inches. Now, that's not hellaciously large for a right. guy as big as he was. And the, the thumb joint to the pointer finger, is that the pointer? Yeah, that's a pointer. Yeah. Um, it was just a tad less. So the bowling ball guy was not blown away by that. What he was blown away by is this. The knuckle in the middle of his thumb Was one and three thirty seconds inches wide?
0: The knuckle to the end of his thumb.
1: This one right here.
0: Right. One
1: wide. Wide. Wow. So that's approximately the size of an unshelled walnut. (laughs) Oh my god! And if you want to get a sense of how large this guy was, right? You just look at your thumb, and you'll go. And so he, one of the reasons he held the bat the way he did with his pinky finger draped over the end was just, again, these were, these were maws of hands. They were just, you know, he said he used the pinky finger to guide the bat, but it was also draped over the end because otherwise it'd be all the way up to the, you know, to the label.
0: Well, so his star, his star was developing and he was really big with the Boston Red Sox. But then he went on to the biggest stage you can go on to, which is New York. Well, oh, they that schmuck Yankee. Harry Frazee who, <laughs> who owned the who owned Red, the Red Sox. Sox.
1: He was a bigger <laughs> schmuck than anybody knew. Um, not only was he stupid enough to sell Babe Ruth after the 1919 season to Jacob Rupert and the New York Yankees, but he, he took a loss on it. I, I have a friend of mine who's an economist and who has studied the um, daily ledgers and account books and all the documentation of the sale. Um, this guy named Michael Halpert, who I can't live without anymore and at this point, he just goes with me everywhere. Um, did all this figuring and basically Jacob Ruper paid one hundred and twenty-five thousand, a hundred thousand dollars for Babe Ruth at um, four installments, seven percent interest, a six percent interest. Wow. Harry Frazee borrowed another three three hundred thousand dollars, right? At seven percent interest, so by the end of six years, basically Harry had paid Jake Rupert to take Babe Ruth off his hands. That's how stupid
0: Harry Frazee was. <laughs> <laughs> My, but and once he got to New York, he went. When was it? Because I'm not so clear on it. He was a pitcher mostly for Boston. Or was yes, a pitcher well, he and started a to make.
1: He started to make the transition in 1918 and 1919 because of the war and because. Players had been taken in in draft into the draft. Um, the Red Sox were hurting for outfielders, and Babe was chafing to play the outfield. He had discovered that this was, as my friend Mike Rizzo, general manager of the uh the Washington Nationals said, you know, he said, screw it, I'd rather hit. You know, <laughs> it's more fun, it's more fun. Um And um, so at one point, the number of people who, let me see if I can get this right, the number of people who would have seen, um, more people would have known one of the Americans who survived the drowning, uh, the, the downing of the Titanic, than the 35 home runs that had been hit in Major League Baseball. Oh, wow. That's how <laughs> rare home runs were. Right. And here comes this guy. So it
0: wasn't a hitter's game, really. At that
1: no, point. it was a manager's game. Right. You know, you had guys like John McGraw and Connie right. Mack who moved players around the bases like chess pieces. You know, you hit uh, left field. It was a small ball, is what it was, and or smart ball they called it. And, you know, just move from station to station to station. And they completely controlled the game. And Babe Ruth, who from the moment he got out of St. Mary's, made it clear that authority was not his favorite thing, you know, just said, why should I do that? I can take one swing and end this thing. Nobody had ever used their body and torque and leverage and the rotation of their hips, you know, which was natural to him. To figure out how to hit a ball over a fence. And he literally took the game out of the hands of the micromanagers in the dugouts and reshaped it in his image.
0: That's a that's a really great point. And and that 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 is something that I learned. I didn't quite really realize that. So once he got onto the Yankee team as a hitter, that's when it just all it all sort of exploded for him, right? At that point. You know,
1: he loved Boston. And, um, it, it was it was Nirvana he was playing, and you know, it was uh, partying out in Sudbury, where, you know, the famous piano disappeared, um, that he allegedly threw into a lake. I actually found the guy who found the piano. But when he gets to New York, his eyes are opened. You know, he is completely synonymous. With the braggadocio and the generosity of the jazz age in New York, it's made for him. He's made for it. It's like,
0: well, let's have a good time, and he did. Tell me about the sadness that came with Babe Ruth as well. What was wh- so because I'm glad of, you asked with that. that kind of background that he had, there had to have been a gnawing sadness at the same there time. There was,
1: and and you, I started to say before he was left um, by his family to create a life and a self at age seven at St. Mary's and God damn it. He did it. Was he flawed? Did he treat women? Well, no. Um, you know, did he know how to be a husband and a father? Absolutely not. But with whatever means he had, he created a life of enduring significance. And I would say largely decency. Um, but you look at the eyes, look at his eyes. And, you know, we picked this picture for the cover that's um, from Nicholas Murray, who was actually um the love interest of Frida Kahlo for 10 years after oh. he went to take her picture is that so, right yeah. I didn't realize that and he that wasn't at all. a sports photographer so right. he wasn't interested in getting you know the beauty of his body in motion he wanted to get at the guy and you can see the babe's holding himself close and he o- often did that it was a very um common posture for him is it was, you know very defensive it's like you know this uh, he could tell this guy was going to get something of him that that nobody else saw and you look at the eyes and they are sad and for all the legends about his smile and his winking at the camera what you see in picture after picture is the sadness and he made the game into and the fans and the teammates and the opponents into the family he didn't have and uh his his one of his granddaughters said to me He was a window wisher. He would walk down a street and he would look in a window and see a family sitting, you know, at the table with, you know, the curtains fluttering in the breeze and say, why didn't I have that? The first thing he did when he got out of St. Mary's was not run amok again the part of the legend was that he immediately went crazy and screwed everything ate everything right. and drank everything he could get his hands on no what he did is he got married and that the marriage failed that he was a young woman named helen woodford 16 years old that that it came to no good and to a tragic end is awful but not surprising but his first instinct was to conform was to try to give himself that which he had never had. And I find that incredibly touching. (laughs) And one of my favorite Babe stories is that in 1944, um, the New Yorker sent a um, reporter to Babe's apartment on Riverside Drive to ask him how he felt about Japanese warriors going to their death, screaming, to hell with Babe Ruth. And he said, well, that sounds like the little itty bitties, you know, which is just (laughs) fabulous. Um, And that sounds just like Babe Ruth, as a matter of fact. But the reporter noticed that his throat was hoarse, which is the first intimation I could find of the nasal pharyngeal cancer that would kill oh, him man. in on August uh, 16th, 1948. He was out of baseball. Baseball had found no use for him. And you can imagine, and again, this got to me a lot. Not even
0: as an ambassador of Nothing. some sort? Nothing.
1: Bupkis. Zero. <laughs> and he... So the repudiation by the game and the failure of the game in any way to find something for him to do, was a was a was a, a re- repetition of what he had had as a child, and so you know once again left alone, rejected by the family, quote unquote that that he had created for himself. And his last years were really depressing and his wife said he was uh, suicidal at times um, uh, but but, you know, once it became clear that he was ill, um, people showed up. But he kept traveling, Mitchell. That's the thing. Ford Motor Company was the only company that would hire him. They paid him five hundred bucks to go to you know whatever city to to do clinics. Um, and in the last summer of his life, 1948, he went to St. Louis where he posed on the field with uh, Yogi Berra and. Uh, Joe DiMaggio, that uh-huh. would have been the St. Louis Browns, and uh, Billy DeWitt, the son of the owner, um, got asked to sign his name and autographs because Babe Ruth had touched him, and he, you know, he looked like hell. He looked, he was, he was, he was emaciated. Um, but he then went to Minnesota. And he did his last radio interview. Now, again, putting him in a cultural perspective, when he comes to Boston, there's no radio. Fame is local. It's as far as your newspaper boy can fling a newspaper. And now here he is. It's 1948. Baseball's being, you know, recorded and not recorded, excuse me, broadcast on television. And here he is giving a radio interview in Minneapolis uh, and the radio interview was conducted by an 11-year-old blind boy named Johnny Ross, who sits in Babe Ruth's lap and asks him questions. And the kid can't see, and Ruth can barely talk because the cancer had strangled his vocal cords. And the kid says, oh, babe, how you feeling? Well, my head's hurting me, you know, and... Well, and I got a terrible headache. Well, who do you think's going to win the pennant, Babe? And he said, "Oh, I think the Yankees look pretty good." And well, who's got the best pitching staff? And oh, yeah. and he, he said whatever he said. And finally, kid runs out of questions. And Babe Ruth puts his arm around this blind kid and says, "It's all right, Johnny. I think we're both just about out of words." Uh. And then he goes back to New York. He cancels the rest of his appearances on tour. Goes back to New York, and he would be dead within weeks.
0: What a chilling story. Yeah. And, and those of you who have not read the book, just hearing Jane speak about it, you have a sense of the way that it's written. And it's it's just a remarkable book, The Big Fella. Thank Jane you. Levy, <laughs> I thank you so much for being here. Oh, on Mitchell, very thank much.
1: you. I've been wanting to do this forever. It's such an honor. Thank you.
0: Thank you.